Um, this is a special, this is a little bit different than the panels that we had earlier. Um, because one of the things that we would like to do is, first of all, open up the kinds of hierarchies that develop in a Q&A, lecture Q&A style conversation. Um, and we wanted to, the main, the main purpose of this panel, um, which is, I think, what did you call it? The revolution continues. The revolution continues, yes. Um, and we actually had quite a hard time thinking about what we wanted to title this panel. Um, because we weren't, we, we were sure what we wanted to do, but we weren't sure what to label it. Um, and what we wanted to do is to assert two or three main ideas. The first and most important one was that movements think. And this kind of conceptualization is often lost in our understanding and our reading of, Arab, uh, of the Arab uprisings, in the sense that we often kind of look at microcosms of actions and activities um, in Midan, for example, but very often, um, and, and theorize them to no end, but very often don't think about what those movements are thinking, uh, how those movements themselves are theorizing what they're doing. So that was one of the kind of main nodes of thinking around this panel. The other, which actually emerges from my own kind of work, is that as, as someone who works outside of Midan al-Tahrir and outside of Egypt, but also has learned quite a bit politically in terms of political organizing from the Egyptian experience, um, we wanted to take a moment to think about Tahrir as an anesis and tahrir as, um, how tahrir has emerged as a nomadic exercise, and what that has meant, and the um, sort of lessons learned from that process. Um, you know, and, and, and the other, the, there's a related question, and we have seen bits and pieces of this in earlier panels, about um, you know, how do you define the, the practices within Egypt um, during the, during the um, early period of the revolution and now. Um, so I, I want to begin by introducing this wonderful panel. And the first person I'd like to introduce is Dr. Hiba Rauf Izzat. And she's an assistant professor uh, in the Department of Political Science, is that correct? <laughs> At Cairo University. And her research and publications and activism focus around comparative political theory, women in Islam, Global, global civil society, new social movements, and the sociology of virtual space. She did, she's an advisor to several youth civil initiatives, and in January 2011, she was a prominent activist, participating in protests and contributing to political debate, as well as liaison, liaising with the groups of different political currents. She recently participated in establishing Beit al-Hikmah, the House of Muslim, the first independent Egyptian think tank founded after the 2011 revolution. Um, our second panelist is Marwa Sharafuddin. She's a women's rights activist based in Cairo, and she's completing her doctorate here in law. She's a campaigner for the reform of women's status laws in Egypt, and she co-founded the Network for Women's Rights Organizations and the Young Arab Feminist Network, as well as um, you know, as well as other NGOs in Egypt. She's also a board member of Musawa, International Movement for Muslim Family Law Reform. She was a protester and campaigner in January 2011 as well, and uh, demonstrations demonstration since, and particularly the women's marches in 2011-2012. Um, she's also involved as a legal expert um, on civil, several civil society initiatives 
um, including one uh, on the writing of the Egyptian constitution. Uh, our third panelist from Cairo, Ahmed, can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Okay. Amr Salah is a journalist for the Tahrir newspaper. He's on the exec he was on the executive board of the Revolutionary Youth Coalition, and he's a founding member of uh, the Democratic Front Party. He was also a founding member of the 6th of April movement, as well as the Association for Change. And he's proud to say that he's been arrested three times <laughs> in the last three or so years. Um, so welcome to you all. I wanted to actually begin with uh, Hiba, and I want, we had a conversation earlier outside and also um, emerging from the earlier con conversation about horizontalism, and I wanted you to perhaps reflect a little bit as someone who was active in Tahrir um, last year and also throughout, throughout in different phases on what you think the emerging sort of um, conceptions are and what has shifted within the thinking within the movement of what of what strategies are needed to move forward. Assalamu <laughs> alaikum. Uh, I'd like first to thank the organizers for inviting me and uh, to uh, show my uh, gratitude. It will, Can you it, speak up? It will, it will come. <laughs> Wait a bit, and then you will close your ears. <laughs> okay, <clears throat> so. Uh, Actually, I, I'm very much interested in what John today uh, talked about regarding the horizontal uh, approach or uh, what we used to study before this uh, sort of Arab Spring uh, described as the network society, though in this case the networks started sort of developing in a, in a new shape and in a new uh, rationale. But generally, uh, the dimensions of the, uh, um, the political phenomena and the power relations outside the structures. And in political theory, one of the main issues that we talk about all the time is the relation between agency and structure, and this is, has been all the time taking our uh, uh, attention. But uh, the new forms, uh, or uh, let's uh, be more precise, the new formless uh, nature of the political uh, engagement and agency that is taking uh, shape, not only in the Arab Spring piece, but before that, for uh, uh, about a decade, uh, uh, there has been a project between uh, the Faculty of Economics and LSE regarding global civil society, trying to understand the unfolding nature of the phenomena. And I remember 2005, I wrote uh, uh, I contributed to the Global Civil Society yearbook, uh, trying to, to capture the notion of global civil society and asking uh, an important question at the time that I thought was important. Is what we know about uh, civil society applicable to global civil society? Is it just a mere difference in scale? Or does the nature of the scale affect the rationale and the raison d'etre of the phenomena itself? Is it just that we're stretching the civil society to become global, so here you have the global civil society? Or is it that when it, once it becomes global, once the size is stretching, once the network relations go outside the boundaries of a nation state, outside the imaginary of a, of a Westphalian sort of uh, uh, nature of the political entity, it, it changes in nature as well, and this has been something that we have been trying to explore, and there has been many comparative uh, uh, reflections on that. So my main, my main idea that I'm trying to explore since uh, uh, about 2009-2010 was actually the notion of the informality 
uh, or the formlessness of political uh, actions. Of course, Kifaya movement in, in Egypt was a very good example, but also the nature of informality, of organizational uh, nature of political uh, exercise uh, for a great uh, uh, deal of uh, uh, sort of dedicate between 2000 and 2010, different uh, actors on the political scene has been, have been acting informally, if we mean by informality uh, the lack of a legal frame, uh, the lack of uh, complete uh, visibility, uh, the ambiguous nature of the action, uh, the uh, sort of the relation between the different uh, parties outside the supervision of the state, uh, the, the, the degree of accountability, because there is something going under the table or under the ground or whatever. And uh, I try to sort of drag the notion from the economic analysis of informal, informal sector to talk about informality within the political domain. Uh, I try to apply this on the Muslim Brothers, on the Egyptian church, Coptic church as well, and try to see how uh, the indirect engagement in politics in the structured sense, in the sort of uh, visible, uh, clear-cut sense, affected the performance of different actors, and, and then Kifaya came into uh, attention, and then other uh, groups and, and movements. When the Arab Spring uh, started, it actually became a big sort of formless movement that everybody wanted to explore what is this Arab Spring about, how did these movements actually achieve what big entities and big structures of opposition did not uh, achieve for the case. And I think that, uh, uh, to cut a long story short, my current concern in, in my research agenda is actually about the very complex relation between the republic and the state. And I think that what we are witnessing is actually a conflict between the state and the republic. What actually Egyptians were seeking when they came out to the streets in January 2011 was not only to have democracy, because they had sort of a facade of a democracy, but they, what, were, what they went against was that they felt that the republic, the notion of the republic, even if unconsciously, even if the word is not used usually in the rhetoric or in the slogans, or etc., but actually what, were they, what they were defending is the ownership of their own republic and the sense that if this project of Gamal Mubarak succeeds, we will move basically into a, a modern form of monarchy or something like that. So this is what they actually went against. And when this happened, actually only the tip of the iceberg fell, but the iceberg is still intact. The, the, the sovereign entities of the state did not change. We still have black boxes that we know nothing about, especially in the security system, especially in the army and what's going on within the army as an apparatus. Nobody knows uh, the, the locks are still uh, uh, closed, the doors are still closed. And, uh, and, and here I tried to trace since the revolution different clashes that have been going on and that have been also quite violent. I mean, it is a peaceful revolution, but the, the path of the last one and a half years has not been peaceful. I mean, it has been all the time witnessing severe clashes that pass by because after two, three days, the different groups and parties come in and, and something takes uh, uh, place or a document that was supposed to be issued that is not issued or one is issued uh, uh, and it was not supposed to be issued, etc. And people just uh, sort of sweep this under the carpet and, and, and move on and this whole discourse of forgiveness and we have to move on, don't stop. I mean, who, who made this problem become such a conflictual situation and then we move on. But if you put it in front of you like a timeline, you'd be surprised how much violent the situation was in, in many situations. What is this? How can we explain it? And my suggestion is that it is a conflict between the notion of the state as in the 
Westphalian modern sense of maintaining order, uh, controlling spaces, etc. And the notion of the republic that is growing via <coughs> a new definition of politics that is trying to challenge all that. And it's not trying to challenge it by establishing an alternative structure. It's trying to challenge it. And this is what makes this regime all the time panic is that it's, it, it adopts a completely different rationale. And this is what actually enabled the, the revolution to take place in the first place, because nobody gives a, a rendezvous uh, uh, for political change. You know, people said, I mean, so you, you decided that it's going to be the 25th, ha, ha, ha. You know, it's like the 25th of January. Are you giving us a date for the political change that is going to take place? But it happened. It was taken lightly, because it was, it, it was a body without a head, and it was seen as liquid. And like, this liquidity is, interestingly enough, an outcome of modernity as well. And for those who want to read more about that, I think Sigmund Bauman, my, uh, my beloved uh, sociologist, you know, is one of the best people who wrote about that uh, in many of his writings. I will simply just touch upon the, the factors or the elements or the dimensions that I think are worth discussion uh, and worth looking into. And I'm trying to work on them as much as I can. And, and they have been mentioned earlier as well. And I just want by putting them on the table to sort of raise the discussion as goes against. Uh, I put, tried to put them in, <coughs> in all in, a, in words that start with S. <laughs> so, <laughs> to make it simple, you know, it's like uh, ABC. Okay, uh, and then uh, another di few dimensions or approaches that start with V, and this has been done before, it's not new, I wrote it in an article that was published, but it's, it's worth uh, mentioning as well. So, first of all, surface. What is on the surface and what is in the bottom? Okay, so at the bottom, when we talk about bottom up, when we talk about uh, 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 um, uh, politics from below, it means what was mentioned in the first uh, session that the indicators on the surface did not really reflect what was going on. And here I think that we have a methodological gap. So political theorists and political scientists have to admit that we, uh, uh, we, qualify for unemployment. You know, so we did not predict that there would be a revolution. And the things that were written by different journalists and writers and, 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 and many people, many opposition people, were analysis, but at the same time, nobody could actually say, this is the moment, if you do this, revolution will break up in the streets. This did not happen, actually. And there is something wrong with our paradigms. There is something wrong with our ability to analyze, and I think, this means that we have to take a bit of time. And, and this is one of the reasons I did not publish for one and a half years, because I've been sitting there you know, trying to understand what's going on. Because the tools that I had that did not enable me as a political theorist to predict the moment or to see the snowball hitting the wall, if we can say so, actually is still unfolding. And I'm trying to just grasp what's going on and to try to test different concepts and different approaches, etc. And this necessitates interdisciplinarity, which necessitates lots of reading. Reading reality and reading theories. And I think this is a very uh, uh, big dilemma for, for social sciences to sort of try to bridge that. The, what, uh, what was mentioned in the, second, uh, uh, in the second session is an attempt to try to sort of unpack what's going on. But it will take time. I think that it will take time for us not to just simply to say, formlessness or informality or horizontality of snacks to describe it. But there is something also that is there. And, and as we always used to sort of cri criticize the notions of the post, you know, post-capitalism, post-modernism, post 
the age of post whatever, you know, because actually we live in an age of many things that are post what used to be before, but what used to be before did not die. So they, they coexist. Some things continue to, be, to, to, to unfold as well, and they change in nature to cope with the changes that are coming from the other side. And we are in front of very complex elements. So surface and bottom is very uh, important to uh, study. The second uh, uh, thing is space and time. And I think that Paul Ammar will talk about that, probably because he is one of those who tried to explore the spatial dimension of the unfolding politics and, 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 and strategies and, and actions, in, in at least in, in urban Cairo, in, in the two volumes that he wrote that are fantastic, actually. And here I bring uh, in space and time the urban dimension. And I refer again to uh, Zygmunt Bauman wrote a very interesting article uh, uh, that was titled uh, Constructive Chaos and uh, uh, the, uh, Constructive Chaos and uh, Destructive Order. And he tried to sort of approach the notions of chaos and order from an urban dimension and to sort of understand the notion of not chaos but agency. That out of that, what takes place in the urban space, something comes out that is not as modern as expected. And also, Nizar uh, al-Sayyad uh, talked about medieval citizenship, how different sort of levels of understanding of space and time live side by side in the urban space, especially uh, across the lines of class and across the line of where different classes are accommodated and positioned uh, on the uh, map of the city. Uh, this is a dimension that exists, revolution, and these revolutions are very urban. And though they have a logic that goes against the order of the urban modern city or the urban space, they, they, they are positioned on that platform as well. And this creates a lot of confusion. You expect something that does not happen. You know, you say this is going to be this path, and then they shift to an alley instead of going on the high street. You know, So it's like, this is the geography. It's not easy. The third word is size and politics. I think that small is beautiful is very important. You know, the small groups that nobody expected to have such an impact actually made this uh, uh, change take place. And we were reminded this morning that only 2% of the uh, French people participated or joined the revolution. I think we have the same, almost the same percentage or even less in the case of Egypt. I mean, revolutions do not, when you talk about massive revolution, it doesn't mean that 90% of the people are on the street, but you're talking about a substantial number that makes the elephant panic. You know, that ants come on the street, so the elephant starts panicking, and once they, the elephant runs in one direction, they are faster to run in the, into the other direction. And that is exactly what happened from the 25th to the 28th. The demonstration did not stop a second. You know, in, we are in Shobra, and then they tweet or they send messages, oops, we are in Rod farag we went to Bula, you know, and they have been running uh, 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 all night long. It didn't stop, it didn't stop since it started. So size and politics is important. Structure and agency, as I mentioned before. Sovereignty and democracy. I think that what we are witnessing now is an attempt not only to redefine politics or to reown your own spaces of, of citizenship, but it, all, it also has to do with we are the people. A sharp you read. You know, a sharp you read means that we will not shut up because there is a struggle against Israel, there is a struggle to build an, an Arab nation, the Nasserist sort of propaganda, etc. We're not going to shut up as poor because you are working on your structural adjustment programs and we have to wait for 10 years till the trickling down starts, you know, reaching our uh, our uh, empty stomachs, you know. We're not going to do that. And this is a redefinition of what sovereignty means in the socio-political sense. 
Uh, another factor is sacralization and desacralization, and it was mentioned uh, in the last uh, session when we're talking about jokes. People are not becoming more secular, on the contrary. I can claim that we are witnessing a rise of religiosity, but it's a different type of religiosity than, than the Islamism of the Islamic groups and movements that we know. It's like, okay, now I have to look into my religion because they are saying nonsense, and I didn't have enough knowledge about my religion, and now I have to go back and read my Quran and read the Sunnah because I'm positive that this is nonsense that they are saying, but I don't know how to reply. And I know massive number of people who started sort of taking back their uh, religion and, and considering it to be a serious factor in their life, but not a la Islamism. It's, it's a different uh, way. Uh, secu securitization. Did I say that? Mm -hmm. Securitization. And I think that uh, one of the elements that need exploration, which is a very sensitive issue, but I think that it should be put also among the different S's that we are mentioning here, is the rising uh, uh, um, uh, sort of uh, uh, presence of, of arms, uh, not in the revolutionary street, but on the street. Like Egyptians are buying arms now, and we have a, a market of buying arms in Egypt, especially if coming from Libya. Okay, and I know in Upper Egypt, and not only in Upper Egypt, but also in the Delta, that many people have back home, uh, 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 starting from a, a small gun to, uh, uh, to an RPG, you know? And, uh, and in Kenya, I went to Kenya when, when we had this uh, sort of uh, crisis and people stopped the train and, and just demonstrated and sat in on the train's uh, uh, rails. And, uh, and uh, I, I, there was a talk, you know, somebody was saying, if you don't stop that, the army will bomb you probably, and they will send you know, uh, airplanes to, to sort of raid you or whatever. And people laughed. They said, we have, I don't know how you say it again, it's anti-airplanes. Uh, <laughs> you should know what it means. And they said, we have it. I mean, let them try. You know, so Egyptians are not violent. But there is a growing market, especially because of the security vacuum that took place. Now we have two scenarios, and I'll try to be very short, a scenario of a possible uh, or potential civil war, you know? But also a scenario of that if everybody's armed, this is in itself a guarantee for peace. And then go back to the American anti-federalist movement, you know, if the government knows that people are armed, we will not have the same government and the same state power that we used to have before. Whether they will jump on people and take their arms away or not, this is something I don't know. But what we're witnessing because of the one and a half years of security vacuum is serious and it can go in a very good position, direction and they go in a very negative direction. Uh, spaces of meaning, what does it mean? All the words that we know, the state, citizenship, loyalty, culture, uh, socialization, everything is changing. And also the symbolic dimension, uh, the symbolic dimension of the walls uh, in the streets of Cairo, the symbolic dimension of the graffitis, the symbolic dimensions of the jokes, the symbolic dimension of, of everything that you can uh, imagine. The symbols are being a very important. Uh, uh, last word is systems, systems of ideology, systems of economics, the political system it's itself and the degree of credibility that it is gaining or losing across time. Either. So it has been gaining a lot of uh, attention and, and enthusiasm. I think that we are witnessing a boycott now, a, a, a bigger boycott campaign to boycott the, the presidential elections that might be the same or even a bit more than the boycott campaign that took 
place during the uh, parliamentarian elections. Uh, so whether the, the performance of the parliament has, has uh, sort of meant, driven people to disenchantment or not, I mean, we still cannot tell. But the systems are changing. The systems themselves are changing. So the formal structure and the informal formless are, are sort of in a dialectic relation all the time. And I can't tell you how it is developing, because it's very difficult, actually, to map. And it will take time. Thank you.